Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll read the entire chapter uh, again today. But our focus will be in verses 4 to 14. Though we won't uh, finish all of these verses today, they all are dealing and treating the same topic. So Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, there the word of Christ says this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of power. When he had made purification of sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And to the angels he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the heaven and the the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will all be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we do pray that today, Lord, you would give to us, Lord, an anchor for our soul, one that is steadfast and immovable. Lord, that you would show us and that we would see by faith the very glory of Christ. Lord, how he is superior to all. And Lord, that you have bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name. Only he is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Lord, if we are going to come to know you, the true and living God, then we can only know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us this conviction, Lord, that we might not look to any other source of wisdom, but only to Christ as he is revealed to us in your holy word. And Lord, we pray that we would trust in him and him alone for our salvation. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in these opening verses of Hebrews, we saw last week that he's laying out here the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the focus of all of the scriptures. He is the one that God spoke to the fathers about in the prophets long ago in many portions and in many ways. He's also the one that has spoken in these last days. He is the one revealed from heaven to make known to us the will of God in his person and in his work. So whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, we must come to know God the Father through the Son. It is only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we can have a true knowledge of God, one that leads to 
salvation that leads to reconciliation with God. His superiority is seen in his person, right? In the person of Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man. And this superiority we saw taught in many ways. He said there in verses 1 to 3, that God appointed Jesus Christ heir of all things, that God made the world through Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of his nature. Jesus Christ is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the one who made purifications for sins, and he is the one who now is sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. These are the things mentioned by the apostle to display clearly the greatness of Christ over all things. Now, verse 4 of Hebrews 1 serves as a transition. The apostle will now seek to display the superiority of Christ, and he'll do so by way of comparison, by contrasting him with another creature, with an, a creature in comparison to Christ. He's going to compare Jesus to the holy angels and prove from the Old Testament scriptures that what the prophets predicted concerning the Christ has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Certainly the angels have a role and purpose in the fulfillment of the will of God. But their role is to support and advance the ultimate goal, which is the superiority of Christ, that Jesus would be honored above all. So why would we abandon Jesus for angels? when the angels exist, to glory Christ and to do his bidding. And yet, this is a common problem. Whether in the ancient world or in our own day, people have a fixation and a fascination with angels. So much so that many are more focused on angels than they are on Christ, who is the ruler of angels. And we should not have this attitude. It says in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, it says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grow with a growth which is from God. There, one of the problems he's addressing to the Colossian church is worship of angels. There are people who promote and teach the worship of angels, whether they say it in those terms or not, the way that they're acting and behaving in relation to angels does constitute worship of them. And he says that we should not take part in this, but we should only worship Christ. So last week, what we started is that we cannot have the Father without the Son, and we cannot have the prophets without the Son. And now we'll see we cannot have the angels without a proper view of the Son. We must have a proper understanding of Christ. The identity and the ministry of Christ, they go hand in hand. And if we do not identify Christ correctly, according to the teaching of the Bible, then we cannot benefit from his ministry. We must understand who he is, who he is according to the word of God. And this is what he is showing here. So let's begin in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll start in verse 4 today. There it says, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Here, having thoroughly displayed the greatness of Christ, he now proceeds to show that he is greater than the angels. Now, in this, the apostle is not trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and the angels, as if there exists some conflict or dissonance between Jesus and the holy angels. The holy angels 
they know their proper place. They are happy to serve Christ. They are happy to extol His greatness. They in no way, shape, or form are seeking rivalry with Christ. And the angels promote the worship of Christ. If we look in Revelation 19, Revelation 19, verses 9 and 10, we see one such instance where the Apostle John, in his exuberance, goes beyond what is written and begins to worship an angel, and the angel quickly puts an end to it. Revelation 19, verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then also while we're there, if you flip over to 22, Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. So the angels do not want men to worship them. They want nothing to do with that. They are promoting the worship of God and the worship of Jesus Christ. However, sinful men are inclined to superstition. Sinful men will obscure the glory of Christ by extolling angels too much so that it is necessary by way of contrast to demonstrate the glory of Christ over the angels. And this is what he is seeking to do here. Here he states, having become as much better than angels. Now certainly, since the creation of the world and since the angels came into existence, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has been much better than angels. He has always been much better than angels. But here he's referring to the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, as God in human flesh, after his humiliation, when God glorified him, God manifested that he is much better than the angels. When God exalted Christ by his resurrection from the dead, by his ascension into heaven, by his sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, God the Father proved he manifested to all that Jesus Christ is much better than angels. What was always true of him was made known, was clearly displayed when these things came about. The glory and honor that belongs to Jesus far exceeds the glory and honor of any angelic being. Even the greatest of the angels like the archangel Michael, or like the angel Gabriel, they fell in comparison to the glory of Christ. So he says he's not a little better than the angels, he's not slightly more glorious than the angels, but much better than the angels, far greater than any angel. And why is this the case? Because, he says, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This is the proof the basis for the argument that Jesus is superior to angels. He has inherited a name from God the Father that is more excellent than any name given to any angel. His name represents his person, who he is, what is true of the person. 
The name given to Christ by the Father shows that he is equal to the Father, that he possesses the same divine nature as the Father, that he has the same glory as the Father. And this cannot be said of any angel. That's why God did not give them that name. Nor can it be said of any man, because God has not given us that name either, but it is only true of the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Only he is the radiance of God's glory. Only he is the exact representation of his nature. This truth God has displayed by giving to him a name. Now, what is that name? Verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The father addresses him as son. His angels are messengers. His angels are ministering spirits. But they are not the only begotten son from the father full of grace and truth. And it is impossible that God the Father would address any created being, whether an angel or a man, as his son in the same way that he says it about Jesus Christ. Now certainly in Job chapter 1 verse 6, there the angels are called sons of God. But not like it is in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, he means it in a unique way. He means it in a special way, a unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Right, Only he has this title of son in this way. Which angel has God ever called my son? It cannot be found. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. Because that name can only be given to one who is equal to the Father. Only to one who has the same divine nature as the Father. The angels do not have that nature. The angels are created beings. They do not possess a divine nature, but rather they possess the nature given to them by God as angels at their creation. The name my son can only be said of Jesus Christ. And this he proves by quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this serves as a reminder that the pattern established by the apostle when he sought to establish the doctrines of the Bible in relationship to Christ. He did not appeal to the authority of men. He did not appeal to human traditions. He did not appeal to his own ideas, his own opinions, his own whims and fancies. When he's seeking to display the truthfulness of his doctrines, where does he go? He goes to the Scriptures. He goes to the Word of God, and he bases his teaching on the Word of God. Now, If the apostle, who is himself being led by the Spirit of God to write Holy Scripture, if he finds it necessary to ground his doctrine, to prove his doctrine by appealing to the Scriptures that came before him, then how much more ought we, who are not apostles, who are not writing or speaking the infallible Word of God, how much more ought we to prove and ground our teaching, our doctrines, with the scriptures, with the word of God. And this is what he's doing. Now, he does this because, first, he believes that there is no greater authority on earth than the word of God. And this is a conviction we must have as well. The word of God is the greatest authority on earth. And the word of God must be our authority for 
our beliefs, for our practices, for the way that we live, what we believe and what we practice. Everything in our faith must be grounded on the word of Christ because there is no greater authority. It must be our rule for faith and practice. Then secondly, he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures because he also knows and believes that there is no contradiction between the prophets and Christ. It's not that the Old Testament is giving one message and the New Testament is giving another. If that was the case, then he would not be able to appeal to the Old Testament because it wouldn't make any sense. But he grounds everything he says by going to the Old Testament scriptures because he knows that there's no contradiction between the two. But rather, the Bible is presenting one unified message. The apostle writing in the New Testament era can appeal to scriptures written in the Old Testament era because all scripture is testifying to the same truths. And here, he is proving the superiority of Christ from the Old Testament because that's what the prophets were talking about in the Old Testament. They were predicting what would be true of Christ when he appeared in the world. Also, it should be stated that when the apostle is quoting the Old Testament... He is not giving a new novel interpretation of the Old Testament. He isn't putting a new spin on it. He's not giving a new way of looking at an old passage. He's not providing a new layer of interpretation, a spiritual layer on top of what was a physical layer before. This isn't the case at all. But there are many interpreters of the Bible who take it this way, who will say that David is writing in Psalm 2 or in Psalm 110 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 22, Right, these messianic psalms or these messianic passages, that when David is writing these things, he's writing about himself. Right? He's just musing about his own life, his own kingdom, about what he wants God to do for him. He wants God to expand his kingdom, to defeat his enemies, to give him prosperity on earth, to give him success in whatever he does. And Christ isn't even on his mind. He doesn't even know about Christ. He's like, what is this Christ? Who are you talking about? He doesn't have any of these things on his mind. He's simply reflecting on his own life, his own desires, his own circumstances. And that's what he's doing when he writes Psalm 2 or Psalm 110 or 16 or any of the other messianic psalms. And then later on in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles take these same passages that originally were about David and then they apply them to Christ. They give a new interpretation. They put a new spin on these things and say that These things are also true of Christ. But this is not the case at all. Rather, David or any other prophet who spoke about Christ, who spoke about his kingdom, they understand the significance of what they are writing. They understand and know that Christ is on their mind. He is at the forefront of what they are talking about. Christ is the topic of Psalm 2, of Psalm 110 of Psalm 16 or any other messianic passage in the Old Testament. And the apostle is giving the one, the only, true interpretation of the psalm. This is the interpretation held by David, who wrote the psalm. This is the interpretation that he taught in his own day to the people. And this is the interpretation that has been held by all true believers from the time that David wrote it up until the present day. David knew that when he wrote Psalm 2, he was not writing about himself. He's not recording a conversation between himself and God, but rather he is writing about Christ. 
and he's writing and predicting things that will be true of him, but that were not true of David. How can some of these things be true of David? Now, let me prove this from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 36. Here, the apostle Peter explicitly states that when David wrote, in this case, he's talking about Psalm 16, that when David wrote this psalm, he knew that he was not speaking of himself. Acts chapter 2, verse 25 says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Now, here's Peter's interpretation. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So there he's showing there's no way that this psalm can be talking about David because he saw corruption. He died, he's buried, and his body is still here to this day, 900 years later, and it's still there and it has undergone decay. Then verse 30, and so... Because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So did David know about the resurrection of Christ? Did he know about his person? And did he know about his resurrection? And if he knew about his resurrection, did he also know about his death? Well, he had to if he knows about his resurrection. And he clearly says there in Acts chapter 2 that he was a prophet and he knew that God has swore these things to Christ. And that's who he's writing about. So David clearly knew and understood those things. He knew that the Christ was coming into the world. He knew that the Christ would be fully God and fully man because he is the one who sat down at the right hand of God the Father. How could any mere man sit at the right hand of God the Father? It's impossible. He knew that he was fully God and fully man, God in human flesh. He knew that as a man, the Christ would be one of his descendants. And he knew that God would give this one descendant, the Christ, an eternal kingdom. And that his kingdom was a type of the kingdom of Christ. This is the way that we should look at the Old Testament. This is the way that we should interpret the Old Testament prophets, right? We should look at the Old and New Testament in this way. How do the New Testament apostles interpret and quote the Old Testament scriptures? The prophets announced, they predicted beforehand both the true person of Christ and his work, his incarnation, 
His birth to the virgin, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His sitting at the right hand of God, His second coming. All of these doctrines are found in the Old Testament. You can find them written in many of the prophets. Christ fulfilled all of these things. Everything written in the prophets predicted about the Christ was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And then the apostles are proclaiming to the people these things. That all of it has been accomplished in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And they do not need to look for another Christ. And if you do look for another Christ, then you're going to miss the Lord's anointed. And you're not going to benefit from his ministry. You're going to die in your sin. And you're going to go to hell. This is what they're telling the people that they should not look for another Christ, but rather put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Another passage to confirm this Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. This is Jesus when he is speaking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. 25, he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Which scriptures is he appealing to? Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. So he's talking about the Old Testament and explaining to them, and he's even rebuking them and chiding them. Why don't you believe these things? Why are you slow, so slow of heart to believe everything written in the prophets? And then he explains these things to them. It says also in Acts 3.24, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. All the prophets announced the days of Christ. Then the apostles are telling the people, this is what has happened. That's what's happening in Hebrews chapter 1. He's telling them, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. This is true of him. Now, I say this because it is very important that we understand how to properly handle the Bible. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. And many, many false doctrines exist in the church today and have existed in the church since the very beginning because people do not have a right understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The apostle is not only teaching us many glorious truths concerning the person and work of Christ, but he is also teaching us how to properly divide the word of truth, how we should interpret the Bible as well. And about 15% of the book of Hebrews is quotations from the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is a commentary on the Old Testament. This is what he is doing. And the way the apostle interprets the Old Testament is the way that we ought to interpret the Old Testament as well. Okay, now back to verse 5. He quotes here from two Old Testament passages. The first one is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Let's see what the Word of God says in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and we'll read starting in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now here, Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 is the verse that is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, where he says, which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 7 The prophet David is recording a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father says to God the Son, right? Notice there, he says to me, right? He says to me, you are my son. He says this in the first person singular. He did not say to the many angels, you are my sons. He did not say to the many kings of the earth, you are my sons. He did not say to mankind, you are my sons. He did not even say here to redeemed mankind, you are my sons. But the father said to only one person, you are my son. And this denotes deity. The father cannot address any created being with this name because if he did, it would not be true. Only one who is one with the father who is equal to the Father, only He could be addressed by the name Son, used in the way that it is. And this is the way Jesus' opponents took it in John chapter 5. In John 5, 17 to 18, when Jesus is calling God His Father, they understand what He's saying. They understand the implications of the words that He is using. They know that He's making a claim to deity. John chapter 5, 17, which is different than when we call God our Father, right? When we pray, we address God in that way. We've done that uh, so today, but we're not saying it like Jesus did. John chapter 5, 17, he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. The Jews understood rightly that Jesus calling God his father, he was claiming equality with the father. And this is why they wanted to kill him, because of blasphemy. Because if Jesus was a mere man and he was claiming that God was his father, he would be guilty of blasphemy. But in his case, he's not guilty because he's God in human flesh. He is the incarnate son of God and with his divine nature, he is equal to the Father. You and I cannot call God our Father in that way. We can call God our Father as our Creator, in terms of being our Creator. We can call Him Father as our Redeemer on the basis of adoption, but we cannot say, I cannot get up here and say, I and the Father are one. I cannot say, 
God the Father has life in himself, and I have life in myself. I cannot say that just as the Father can raise the dead, so I can raise the dead. I cannot say that I have the authority to forgive sins because I am one with the Father. Who can say that? Can any mere man or any angel make these claims? But can Jesus Christ? Yes, he can, and he did. And this he did legitimately because he is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus alone has this unique relationship with the Father. If God said this about anyone else, God would be lying and God would be blaspheming. And God doesn't do those things. He cannot do those things. He did not say, you are my son, to any angel, but he did say it to Jesus Christ. And then also, today I have begotten you. This is a prediction of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13, 32 to 33 tells us that this is the case. Acts 13, 32 to 33 says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Here, what is being said in Acts chapter 13 is that the day of resurrection is the day when Jesus was begotten, right? Not meaning that that was the day that he became the Son of God. That is not what he's saying in Acts chapter 13 or in Psalm 2. There are those who believe that Jesus was merely a man, and then at his resurrection, he became the Son of God. That before he wasn't, and then afterwards, he was the Son of God. That's not what he's saying in Acts chapter 13 nor in Psalm 2. But he is saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ manifests to the world what has always been true of the Son and what was concealed momentarily in his humiliation. Because when people saw Jesus, what did they see? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Doesn't his mother and his brothers and sisters, don't we know him? Right? He's just a man. There was nothing in his person that they saw that revealed to them that he was the only begotten son. It was only through his words, through his works, through what he did, that these things became clear to the people. But then, at the resurrection, God manifested publicly, openly, the truth and the reality concerning the person of Christ. That he is the Son of God. And that this day, the day of resurrection, God visibly, publicly, without any dispute, declared to the whole world that Jesus Christ is his one and only Son, and he did this by raising him from the dead. So begotten does not mean that that's when Jesus started being the Son of God, but rather it means that this was the day when God manifested it in the world, clearly without any doubt. And this is the same as it says in Acts 17.31. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What is the evidence that we know Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness? It's the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead. Then also in Hebrews chapter 1, he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we'll read verses 
12 to 17, though the quotation is just verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And let's read verse 12. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 says, This is the prophet Nathan speaking to David. It says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed him from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David. Here, this records the covenant that God made with David. Right, when David wanted to build a temple, he wanted to build a house, a temple for the Lord. God comes and tells him, makes a promise to him, that you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build up your house. Meaning, I'm going to establish your dynasty. And I'm going to give to you an eternal dynasty that will come through one of your descendants who will come from your own flesh. This is what God is promising David. That an heir would arise from his lineage who would be given the eternal kingdom of God. A dynasty that would never come to an end because the one sitting on the throne of that dynasty would have immortal life. An indestructible life that will never come to an end. Now, was this accomplished in the person of David? No, because what happened to David? He served his time and then he died. And was it accomplished in the life of Solomon, his immediate successor? No, because Solomon served God during his time and then Solomon himself died. Both of them were prevented from ruling and reigning forever because of death. But who is the one who has an indestructible life? Who has an immortal life, an eternal life? It is Jesus Christ. And is he the son of David? Yes. And he sits on the throne of David, an eternal kingdom God has given to Jesus Christ. When God spoke these words to David, he is primarily speaking of the single descendant. He is primarily speaking to him about the Christ. This is the one who is the object, who is the focus of this passage. Not that David is unrelated, and not that Solomon and the others that come from David's line are unrelated, but primarily he's speaking about Christ, the single descendant who would be the divine Son of God in human flesh. And as a man, he would be descended from the house and lineage of David. And this is why God calls this descendant, he says, he is my son. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And this cannot be said of David or Solomon or any of other of David's offsprings except for one. And who is the only one that this can be true of? Only Jesus of Nazareth. Only it can be said of him because he's the only one that possesses a divine nature. He is equal with God the Father. And this is why Luke 1, 69-70, the prophet Zechariah, there, he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. This is what God promised to David, and this is what is said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. It was spoken in reference to Christ. 
Then verse 6, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 says, And when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Here, the firstborn refers to Christ. And by firstborn, he doesn't mean that there was a time that Jesus didn't exist and then that he was born and he came into existence whenever he was born. There are some cults that teach that Jesus is the first created being and this is what it means for him to be the firstborn. But that's not the way the apostle is using it. It's impossible that that he's using it in that way because he's already stated that he is the eternal son of God. He is the eternal son of God. He did not have a beginning or a creation or a time when he did not exist. But rather, he's using firstborn as a metaphor for the preeminence of Christ. And he's using it in terms of inheritance. Right? Jesus is the firstborn in terms of inheritance. Because who is the one who inherits all things? It is the firstborn, the firstborn heir who is the inheritor, and the firstborn heir of God is Jesus Christ. God has appointed him the heir of all things. That's what we read earlier from Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Did God ever promise David the, the whole world? the nations, the end of the earth? Did God ever promise that to any other person? No, but he does promise it to Christ because he is the firstborn. He is the one who is heir of all things. God did not appoint any angels as the firstborn. No angel will inherit all things, but only the Son of God has been appointed by God the Father to this position of honor. And when Jesus Christ returns... All people and all angels will worship him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11. And that's why he says here in our passage, let all the angels of God worship him. When he comes into the world, God commands the angels, you worship my son. The angels worship the Son. And these are not unholy angels, but holy angels who always do the will of God. Angels, as we read earlier, who know that only God should be worshipped. Isn't that what we read in Revelation when John tried to worship the angel? The angel said, don't do that. Only worship God. Well, who are they worshipping here? They're worshipping the Son just as they would the Father. So if the angels are worshiping the Son by the command of the Father, then what does that say about the Son? What should we conclude about His person, about His identity? That the Son Himself possesses deity. Because we shouldn't worship anyone but God alone. The Father would never command His holy angels to worship an idol or to worship any created thing. And the holy angels have no desire to worship anything other than God. They always want to do the will of God. They would never practice idolatry by worshiping any person or any other thing other than God. So if the angels are worshiping the Son by the command of the Father, then it shows that the Son is divine and is indeed greater than the angels. They worship Him. He's not worshiping them. They worship Him. And here he's quoting from Psalm 97, verse 7. 97, 7, where the prophet is extolling the greatness of Christ's kingdom. 
showing the righteousness, the power, the glory, the honor of the kingdom of Christ. And in verse 7 of Psalm 97, he rebukes those who refuse to worship Christ and instead bow down to worthless idols. And then he commands the angels to worship Christ. It says in Psalm 97, 7, Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Here, my translation uses the term all you gods. Worship him, all you gods, which is translated in the book of Hebrews, worship him, you angels. And that's the meaning. That's what he means. Though the exact term in Hebrew is the term for gods, the way it's being used in the context clearly shows that he's not talking about false gods. Or he doesn't believe that there are myriads and millions and millions of gods that exist and that they need to worship Christ. The context shows that he's talking about a created being. The angels of God, and yet they are called gods, not because they, they have a divine nature, but because of the honor and dignity conferred upon them by God. It's the same that's done in Psalm 58, verse 1. There, rulers, kings, are called gods, not because he believes that the kings of the earth have divine nature, but because they are vested with authority from God to enforce his will on the earth. And in the same way, he calls the angels to worship the Son. Worship the Son and serve him only. Then Hebrews 1 verse 7. Hebrews 1 7 says, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. He has clearly shown that Jesus Christ is much greater than the angels. So then, what about the angels? What is their purpose? What is their function? Why are they here? And here he quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4. God makes wind his messengers, flames of fire his ministers. This is what God does. God sends forth his angels into the world to do his will. And he equips them with whatever is necessary to accomplish the task given to them by God. Sometimes as wind, sometimes as flames of fire. Sometimes to execute judgment on the wicked, sometimes to protect his people, the righteous, from the evil of the wicked by pouring out his judgments upon them. And doesn't God bring judgments into the world through wind, through fire, through storms, through calamities, through natural disasters, what we would call natural disasters? Well, who is God sending to do these things, to accomplish his will on the earth? It is his angels. He makes them winds and he makes them flames of fire to bring his judgments upon the earth. An example of this, 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. 2 Kings 6, 16. This is when Elisha and his servant are in the city and they're surrounded by a foreign army that's come there to kidnap Elisha and take him back uh, to Samaria. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. And the servant is terrified. He's terrified because they're surrounded by this foreign army. 
Elisha says this. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There, the angels are appearing here in chariots of fire, flames of fire, right? They're invisible. Initially, they, you can't see them, typically, but here God gives Elisha and his servant a vision of the unseen world, of the invisible world, for the sake of the faith of the servant. And there they appear as flames of fire. And what could an angel in a chariot of fire do to mere men, to a mortal army? Well, couldn't they de decimate them? Couldn't they utterly destroy them? Of course they could. They've got a chariot made out of fire. So what can these mere men do to them? This is what he means here. God makes his angels appear in whatever form is necessary to accomplish his work. Whether that be wind, whether that be flames of fire, whether that be human form, as we read earlier in Revelation, that the angel was in the appearance of a man when he was conversing and talking there with John. Whatever is necessary to do the bidding of God, the angels are servants of God, his messengers, his ministers, for whose benefit? For our benefit, that would be verse 14, chapter 1, 14 of Hebrews. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? They are ministering spirits. They are sent by God to render salvation for the sake of those who will inherit it. They give service to us. And who sends them here and there to do his bidding? God does and his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ commands the angels. They worship him and they do what he tells them to do. And he tells them to go and render service to his elect, to his chosen ones on the earth for the benefit of our salvation. And just as they worship and serve Jesus Christ, then what should we do? We should be like the holy angels. We should worship and serve Jesus Christ alone. This is what the point of the passage is teaching. We, should, we shouldn't put our faith in angels. We should put our faith in Christ, the one who commands angels. We shouldn't worship angels. We should worship Christ. We should not serve them. We should serve Christ. Right? We should serve Christ. We are fellow servants with them and we all are serving the same Master and Lord who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So then let us put our confidence, our hope, our faith in Christ and in Christ alone and not be distracted and not take our focus away from Him and give it to any man or any other created being, but only to the Son, only to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And Lord, how it so clearly teaches us of the superiority of Christ. Lord, the one that you have given a name that is above every other name. Lord, we know that you have never addressed any angel as my son. Lord, you have never addressed any man. Lord, even the greatest of men. Lord, even those holy men like Moses or Abraham or David. Even they you did not address as my son. But only one. One who, according to the flesh, was a descendant of David, 
but was also declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Only he can possess this title. And so, Lord, we see and we learn that we should worship and serve Christ alone. We should trust in him for salvation. Lord, we should not trust in our own works. We should not trust in any other man. Lord, we should not trust in any angel. Lord, we should not pray to them and ask them to assist us. But rather, we should only come to you and worship and serve and call out to you. And Lord, if you see fit to send your angels to our aid, Lord, you are the one who commands them. Lord, you are the one that sends them to and fro. Lord, to minister, to serve. Lord, to help us in our salvation. But Lord, you and you alone must be worshipped and you must be the focus of all that we do. So Father, we pray that you would give us the same mind that you give the holy angels. That just as they serve and worship Christ alone, so Lord, we pray that we would serve and worship Christ alone. And that we would know you through the Son. So Lord, continue to build up our faith in these things. And Lord, keep us from being distracted. Lord, from looking to and fro at these other things. When we have the object before us, Lord, the object of our faith being Jesus Christ, Lord, his person and his work alone. Lord, may we also have a true identity of Christ. Lord, understand who he is. And Lord, may we see that without a proper understanding of him, we cannot benefit from his life and his ministry, from his death and resurrection. So Lord, guard us from these errors, Lord, from false teachers, from false doctrines that seek to come in and take away, Lord, from the head, Lord, to turn us away from Christ. And Lord, we pray that our faith would be built upon him, Lord, who is the cornerstone, and that we would not look or turn to any other. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.